You're listening to audio from Valley Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to check out more resources or even connect with us, go to www.vcflongview.org. Well, I know it might be a little early to sing Christmas songs. It's not quite Thanksgiving yet, but, but as you remain standing, let's, let's enter into the Christmas season with a reading of one of the titles of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. It's actually a promise. It's a prophecy of Christ. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and then we're going to back up and we're going to learn the context, but here's, here's what the scripture says. God says, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And with that, let's stop and let's sit down right there. And, uh, and I'm so excited for this series. I'm so excited to kind of jump into the Christmas season. And I'm curious, anybody here already have their Christmas lights up or any Christmas decorations at all? All right. Very good. Very good. Anyone here, do you have the hard and fast rule? No decorations until after Thanksgiving. I'm curious. Anyone have the hard and fast rule? Okay. So my wife does as well. And last weekend, uh, fortunately for her, last weekend we ended up being really busy because she was out of the house a good portion of Saturday. And Ella and I, we started to conspire. We thought about taking down all of the fall decorations and putting up all of the Christmas decorations while she was gone. We just didn't have time. That's the first time she's heard of this, actually. So I know it's not quite the Christmas season for many of us, but here's the deal. Christmas, the, the, the workings of Christmas, the coming of Christ, the plans for that started long before Jesus' birth. In fact, the promises of Christmas, they ring true regardless of whether the decorations for Christmas are supposed to be up or not, Right? In fact, we're going to start this series, and we're going to start tonight by looking at this, this main idea of, of really tonight's message, which is simple. It's, it's that God's promises, they stand over our problems. This, this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we're going to see this is a promise of God, and it stood high above all of the promises that Judah was experiencing in that day. Now, I'm going to unpack that for you in a moment, but, but I want to give you a little context for this series that's going to help you over the next few weeks. See, this series, we are going to look at the or seven titles of Jesus Christ that come from the book of Isaiah. So instead of going verse by verse, like we're, we're, we're building our practice of doing, we're, we're going to step back from that, and we're just going to say, let's look at seven titles of Jesus Christ that come out of this prophetic book, the book of Isaiah. And these seven titles, they're traditionally known as the O Antiphons. The O Antiphons. And, and what these were, these were actually phrases that were either spoken or they were sung, and they were used the week leading up to Christmas. And so what would happen is the ancient church, they would, have, they would have evening services. And at the evening service, on the week leading up to, to Christmas Eve, at every night they would have an evening service. And they would read the Magnificat of Mary from Luke chapter 1. And then each night they would, they would either say or they would sing a different title of Jesus out of the book of Isaiah. And these seven titles, they would begin on the 17th of December, and they would last till the 23rd, and actually in Latin, the first letter of each title, if you would take that Latin letter and read them to, 
read them backwards, you would have an acrostic, which would say, it would say, eros cross, which in Latin means tomorrow I come. And so the, the traditional way of using this for worship in the ancient church is they would, they would use a title of Jesus one day a week, every day, leading up to Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Eve, it would almost be like Jesus responding, saying, tomorrow I come. And then on Christmas Day, they would celebrate and remember the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's all rooted on these seven titles that come from Isaiah. And these seven titles were then used for the, for the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we just sang a portion of it. But did you know that, that that song actually has seven verses? We'd be here all night if we sang it together, right? Like, that song has seven verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these titles. And as we do, we're going to look at these verses. Now, tonight, tonight we're looking at the most familiar of the verses, we're looking at the most familiar of these titles, Emmanuel, God with us. But to do so, we, we need to go back in history. We need to go all the way back to about 735 BC. We need to go back to when Isaiah was a prophet in the land. And you need to know a little bit of history here, and I'm hopefully not going to nerd out too much, but this is fascinating. This happened at a time in Israel's history during what's called the divided kingdom. If you have any familiarity with the Old Testament and the history, you had King David, which was an incredible king, and then his son Solomon, which he had some wisdom but made some mistakes. And then after that, the kingdom, Israel, it broke. And it became the northern kingdom, which used the title Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became the kingdom of Judah. And oftentimes they were at war with each other. And this was one of those times in history. This was one of those times in history. And so with, with kind of this, knowing this is the context, let, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to go back to some of the historical context in a minute. But let's start by opening up to Isaiah chapter 7. We have the context of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And there is tension. And what, what I want you to see in these first few verses of Isaiah 7 is that Judah, the southern kingdom, they're in deep water. They're in trouble. Judah is in trouble. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 1 through 6. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, this is Judah, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Judah's in trouble. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Joshua, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This was how Israel, or this is how Judah would get their water into the city, right? Go meet him there, verse 4, and say to him, be careful, be quiet. 
Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in, the, in, in, in Judah. We'll end right there. Here's what we have happening here. We have some, some international war beginning. We have the northern kingdom, Israel, and they're pairing up, they're teaming up with, with another nation, Syria, which is just to the north of Israel. And they're saying, let's go and make a tag team effort to go and destroy Judah. Now in the backdrop, there's an even greater kingdom, the kingdom of Assyria, which is flexing or is actually beginning to wage war against all of these countries. And so there's all of this international conflict happening and it can be get, get a little confusing, especially with all the different names. And, and it doesn't call a country always by the country's name, but sometimes it calls it by like its capital's name. And so let me, let me just help us know who's who. Let's start right there. In your guide, there's actually some notes for you to follow. And I, I found some artistic photos of some of these different kings. And so the first king I want you to know is the king that's Tiglath-Pileser, and he is the king of Assyria. Now, this is a, this is a kind of an a, a artistic rendition of what he likely looked like. And, and this is the king of Assyria. And Assyria, they are waging war already against Syria? as well as against Israel. So these northern nations, they basically have this giant, mega-powerful nation, Assyria, breathing down their necks, threatening to conquer them. The next photo is, is the photo of, of Pekah, the king of Israel. So in the broken kingdom of Israel, Pekah, he, he, is, the, he is the king of Israel, and he, he, he received his kingship by murdering the previous king, right? And so this guy, he's pretty conniving. He's not a good dude. And the next one, I couldn't find a photo of him, but this is the king of Syria, Rezin. When you can't find a photo, you make do with what you can find, right? Uh, king of Syria here, he, he is, he, he's, he's another bad guy in our story. But then you have the king of Judah. The king of Judah is Ahaz, and, and we would want to think that this is maybe the hero of our story, or this is a good guy, but he's not either. He is he's the king of Israel, and he, we're going to see in a moment, he is not a good guy. And so if you were to look at the maps here, here's what you would see. You would see, first of all, the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom, you see those, the, the, those three colors. The top color would be Syria. The middle color would be Israel. And the lower color, that would be Judah. These are these three nations that are right over by the Mediterranean. But then if you expand out a little bit, then you see this mega power, which is Assyria. They're kind of beginning to control the whole northern region. They are flexing. They are strong. They have a new king, this Tiglath-Pileser, and he is, he is a powerhouse. He is really working to control. He wants to control the entire Mediterranean. He, he wants total domination. He wants to be the, the ruler of the world at that time. Judah is in trouble. They have a big problem. But, but not only is Judah in trouble, Judah's king is evil. Ahaz is not a good guy. 
Judah's king, he is, he is a terrible king, not just, because he's, not just because he's bad at leading. He is a terrible king because he is spiritually an adulterer. He is spiritually evil. He rebels against God Almighty. Let me give you, let me give you a picture of how evil this king is. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. This describes the kind of person that Ahaz is. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images of the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Look at this, and he burned his sons as offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz is a wicked, wicked, evil king. He doesn't just go and have a grain offering. He doesn't just go and sacrifice an animal. He takes his sons and he offers them as burnt offerings to the pagan gods. Ahaz is a false worshiper, and with his false worship, he has incredibly corrupt, evil actions. And false worship and child sacrifice are evils that are inseparable. They are tied together completely. It makes you think for just a moment of our secular humanistic world and why it pushes so hard for things like euthanasia and how it turns its head at, ge- at genocide and how it, how it advocates for abortion. You see, false worship and, and human sacrifice goes hand in hand. We, we just, in our modern day, we call it by different terms. But it all has the same evil root behind it. And Ahaz is in the middle of all of this. Ahaz, Ahaz is not a follower of God. Ahaz, he, he is a king that he deserves to be wiped from the face of the earth. Ahaz is a king that deserves to have God open up heaven and rain down judgment upon him. Look, it, Judah is in trouble and Ahaz, their king, is evil. But look with me back at the text. Yet God shows mercy. This is remarkable. For all of his evil, what Ahaz deserves is absolute judgment. But God is rich in mercy. Look at verses 11, or 7 through 11 of Isaiah 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. Time out. What shall not stand? These northern kingdoms coming and destroying Judah. God says, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And, with six, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, 
Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. There is so much going on here, but in the very core of this, God is merciful. And you know what God does in this moment? God ends up giving incredible promises to Ahaz. This guy who deserves nothing but judgment, God comes to him and he says, let me promise a few things to you. You know what his first promise is? His first promise is an enduring kingship. An enduring kingship. Verse 7, the Lord God says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. God looks at these nations beginning to, to make war against Judah. And you know what God says? God says, nope. Not going to happen. He says, it shall not stand. These nations that are going to come and try to conquer Judah, he says, they are not going to succeed. He, he actually says, within 65 years, Ephraim, this is, uh, this is his way of talking about the, the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, it will be shattered from being a people. And God here says that these enemies against Judah, they will be destroyed. Now the question is, Why? I mean, Ahaz deserves this punishment. Why would God say no in this moment? Why would God make a promise to Ahaz that this kingdom will not be destroyed? Well, it's actually not because of Ahaz. Because Ahaz, he, he, is, he, he is a descendant of who? Of King David. And God has made an incredible promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 is just a, a small portion of the promise God makes to David. It says, And your house, God speaking to King David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God makes this promise to Ahaz because God's already made a promise to David. And God's promises, they stand above our problems. God doesn't look at our problems and say, oh, too hard for me. I guess I can't help you. I don't know what I can do. God's promises always stand above our problems. And that's what we see just in, in a, a minuscule version right here is God says, no, I'm going to make a promise. First of all, the enduring kingship. But there's another promise the promise really is kind of a different way of looking at it as a promise. But, but the second promise is the expectation of faith. God makes it really clear that he has an expectation of Ahaz. Faith is what he wants, even though Ahaz is messed up big time, even though Ahaz has rebelled in atrocious and heartbreaking and terrifying ways, even though Ahaz has a wicked, evil heart, God's calling him to faith. Verse 9, at the end of it, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God, God's saying, you can be firm in faith. If you will stop trusting in these pagan gods, if you will turn away from your idolatry, if you will stop worshiping the things of the world, and if you will turn toward me, and if you will trust me, you can be firm. You can be firm in your faith. But if you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. God makes a, a promise that he expects Ahab to respond in faith. But there's one more promise. One more promise that gets us to really this beauty of our text today. This last promise is the extraordinary sign. It's an extraordinary sign where God turns to Ahaz and he says, let me prove myself to you. Look at verse 10. 
Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Do you see how merciful God is in this moment? God is going before a wicked, evil man. And he is saying, I am making these promises to you. In fact, the promise I'm going to make, I will give you a sign, and it can be whatever you want. What would you ask for in that moment? Some of us, we we would say, God, will you heal this broken relationship? God, will you bring health where there's not health? God, will you restore someone I love? Will you restore them back to faith in you? Will you redeem someone who's yet to trust you? What would you ask? God, would you, would you give me riches and glory and fame? I don't know what you might ask. What would you ask in this moment? God tells Ahaz, he can literally ask for him to realign the stars or change the depth of the underworld. <laughs> God, in a snap of his fingers, can reunite these divided kingdoms with Ahaz's king. I mean, the, the possibilities are limitless. God makes this incredible, incredible promise. But here's the issue. Not only is Judah in trouble, and not only is their king evil, but Judah's king is also foolish. He's a fool. Look at, look at his response to God. In essence, Ahaz, in his response to God offering his mercy and promising a sign, whatever he wants, God, or Ahaz, in this moment, he turns away from God in his foolishness. Verses 12 and 13. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, God, responds, Hear then, O house of David, it is, is it too little for you to weary men that you, you weary, my, weary my God also? <laughs> Here's what Ahaz does. Ahaz puts on false religion. God himself says, ask whatever it is you want. And Ahaz says, oh, how dare I ever put God to the test? He acts like he's almost above it. He puts on the smile, he puts on the clean clothes, he dresses up all religious, and he uses the right language, but at the very core of it, this is a false religious idea, this is foolishness before God, especially because Ahaz, I guarantee he knows his ancestry. Ahaz, has a, a, Ahaz is a descendant not only of King David, but of King Solomon. And King Solomon, God came to him and asked him the same thing. He said, I will give you whatever it is you want. And you know what Solomon said in that moment? Solomon asked not for riches, not for power, but for wisdom. There's no way Ahaz did not know this. There's no way this has escaped Ahaz's attention, but because Solomon was wise and because Ahaz is a fool, in this moment, Ahaz does not ask for wisdom. He does not ask for power. He does not ask for riches. He he just demonstrates his foolishness. He turns from God, but but it gets even worse. He doesn't just turn from God. he, He turns to the world. He turns to the world. 
This, this passage overlaps with a few other books of the Bible. One of the books of the Bible that overlaps with is, is 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, you have, you have a parallel version of this story. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, look at, what, look at what Ahaz does when God says, I'm here for you. I will heal you. I will care for you. I will, I will be your God. Just have faith in me. And then Ahaz says, I'm not going to have faith in you. 2 Kings 16, verses 7 through 9. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Time out. What if Ahaz would have responded to God this way? <laughs> but instead he turns to a pagan king. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hands of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Verse 8, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found where? In the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king of the king's house. And he sent a present to the king of Assyria and the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. Now listen, Ahaz is a fool from a spiritual perspective, but he is wise in the eyes of the world. If this were today, we would call him a shrewd diplomat. If this were today, we would call him an expert in foreign affairs because he has managed to partner and to align with another nation and to take out his enemy. But listen, he had the promises of God laid right before him. And instead of trusting God Almighty, he trusted a foreign and pagan king. Again, you would think God in this moment would just be done. Yet, just like God showed mercy earlier, yet God promises greater salvation in this moment. This is where we find our text this is where we find this prophetic word about Jesus. This is where we find the title, Emmanuel. God promises an even greater salvation. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz says, I, I don't want a sign. I, I'm too religious for that. I, I don't need you to do anything spectacular for me, God. And God says, oh, Yeah. I'll give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For, behold, for before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not since come to the, to the day of Ephraim departed from Judah. What is he going to bring? The king of Assyria. Again, there, there's a ton here. But at the very core of this passage, the very core of this passage, it's talking about this promise that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name will be God 
with us. Emmanuel. Now I want you to, I want you to just, uh, I want you to dig deep with me for a moment. Dig deep into the, the character of this child. What, what do you notice about this child? First of all, I want you to notice his virgin birth. The word here for virgin is debated. There could have been another word in Hebrew used for the word virgin here, but in no other literature outside of the scripture is this word virgin used except for someone who's unmarried. The idea here is is a woman who is unmarried, a woman who is yet to to be intimate with a man. That is the very clear meaning of this word. This This is a virgin. And so we see that this virgin birth means that there's something remarkable about this child. There's something remarkable about this human child. This isn't just going to be a random, like all of a sudden, boom, someone's here and they're an angel or God himself in spiritual form. This is, this is a virgin birth of a human child. But I also want you to notice his righteous life. Not only is a miraculous human born, but he lives a righteous life. It says, he shall know how to refuse evil and choose good. He, he, he will have a remarkably righteous life. In those places in our lives, when you and I, when we, we've known the difference between good and evil and we've done evil, that's not going to be the characteristic of this person. This this person is going to be very different. He is going to have a righteous life. And not only that, not only is he of a virgin birth and born of a woman, so he's going to be human, not only is he going to have a righteous life, but he's going to have a divine nature. Look, Look at this. This is incredible. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, literally God with us. Now, these, these words might have fallen on Ahaz's ears, and he might have thought, oh, maybe it will be one of my kids. Well, maybe it will be one of my boys, but, but it wasn't. You see, this, this was a moment that described the character of, of the Messiah, the character of this child, but also in this text, it also it, it describes really the conclusion of Ahaz. It, it describes not his death, but really his diminishing life. Look at what you see, first of all. You see, his enemies are destroyed. We recognize that. He calls on the king of Assyria. We've already seen in 2 Kings, the king of Assyria comes, and you know what he does? He destroys the enemies of Ahaz. And so so short term, everything's going to work out really good. His enemies will be destroyed, but his reign, his reign from that moment will be diminished See, Ahaz thinks that he has made such a great deal with the king of Assyria. He's partnered with this this great and powerful nation, but really this is the moment where his his own reign begins to diminish. Verse 17 again says, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. He's talking about the day when this one kingdom divided, when, when the north and the south separated, when there was a tragic moment in the history of Israel and the nation, this one nation, this one nation Israel was broken. He says there's going to be a day like that, even worse. And he says, you know what that day is going to be? He just says, the king of Assyria, this king of Assyria, 
This king is going to come, and he's not going to be your buddy. He's not going to make everything well, and you're going to live your life just perfect in happiness. This is what happens. I mean, let's just step aside. This is a picture of partnering with the world and trusting in the ways of the world instead of following and trusting in God. It might sound sweet at first, but, but really it's going to lead to your destruction. Second Chronicles chapter 28, verses uh, 19 through 21. It describes the moment of that picture you just showed. We'll go back to that picture in just a moment. Verse 19, it says, For the Lord humbled Judah the nation, because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. Verse 20. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. And go back to that previous slide, that, that picture. Here... Here's what ended up happening to Ahaz. This is actually not meant to be Ahaz before Tiglath-Pileser, but this is usually what Tiglath-Pileser would do with a foreign nation. He would, he would either conquer them and kill their king, or he would flex his power and the king would come and bow before him. And basically, in this moment, Judah became a vassal state, not of God, not of Yahweh, the one true God, but of a pagan nation and another evil king. See, this promise God brings, this greater promise about Emmanuel, this is actually not good news at all for Ahaz. See, God here is not, he's not bringing this promise for Ahaz, but despite of Ahaz. He's saying, you're not going to trust in me, you're not going to have faith in me, but I have a greater promise and a greater plan Now, at this point, I want to fast forward. I want to fast forward 14 generations. 14 generations all the way to the book of Matthew. We're going to fast forward roughly 800 years. A lot can happen in 800 years. And now, Israel and Judah, they're no longer bond servants of Assyria. They have another nation that is controlling them. This is the nation that is Rome. Rome now controls them, and, and, and they have not heard God's voice for 400 years. And then you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is, this is the Christmas story you expect, <laughs> not a story about warring nations from 700 B.C., right? Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name. You know the story. What I want you to see is this promise, this promise that for us, that for us was about, oh, 2,700 years ago. This promise was fulfilled about almost 800 years after it was given. This promise was fulfilled roughly 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit had Mary conceive. The virgin shall conceive and give birth. And you will call his name Emmanuel. I want you, I want you to see the characteristic of Mary's pregnancy and of her son. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I want you to see his virgin birth. Now the birth of Jesus came and took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, look at these words, before they had come together, before they had consummated, while she was still a virgin. Jesus fulfills this ancient prophecy with his virgin birth. I want you to remember Jesus' righteous life. You realize, I don't know if you know this, Jesus never once sinned. Jesus never once rebelled against the heavenly father. Jesus is what is called the perfect lamb without blemish. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 describes Jesus this way. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, look at this, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The context of this is talking about animal sacrifice, but now it says, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who is the only one who is without blemish, without sin, we sin all the time. You and I, we, we, we have this old nature, even those who are in Christ, we find ourselves being sinful with our actions, with our attitudes, with our words. We find us slipping into selfishness or lust or anger or greed. Who knows what it was for you this week? Who knows what it was for you today? Who knows what it was for you an hour before you came to service? Each of those are considered a blemish. But Jesus lived a righteous life. He always chose holiness. He always chose to please his heavenly father. See, not only did he have a virgin birth and was born as a human, not only did he have a righteous life, always choosing to honor God, but I want you to see his divine nature. This is best captured in the book of John. John has a, a birth narrative for Jesus that is, that is entirely theological. It's not like, here's how the story goes. Here's what John says. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is talking about the Word. 
And you might be wondering, what is the word? Who is the word? Go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called God with us. Fast forward a little bit further. I know we have covered 2,700 years of history. I know this has been a little bit of a unique sermon as we have done a lot of digging up. How, what was going on historically in these moments? But, but I shared all of that to get to these next few moments. Because here's what I want us to remember right here and right now. See, see, like Ahaz, like in Ahaz's day, life today holds trouble. For Ahaz, it was Judah was, they were being terrified by the surrounding nations. They had the threat of war and of being conquered. These were real threats for them. But guess what? Today, we have all sorts of trouble in our prayer time before service today, we talked about numerous families who, who have family members dealing with COVID, some of them in very serious situations. In these moments where our hearts just kind of like fall right out of our chest. In, in this past week, I, how many of us have experienced moments where we have, we have either faced trouble because of our own sinfulness and our own rebellion? Or we face trouble because of someone else and their sinfulness and their rebellion. And whether it's ourselves or someone else, we're left in the wake of pain and trouble and hurt and sorrow. See, like Ahaz's day, like life today is full of trouble. And not only that, like Ahaz, who was very evil, like Ahaz, we have all been evil. To you and I, we're not like Jesus. We have not lived a life without spot or blemish. We have not said, oh, you know what? Look at, look at how great I am. I'm the example of, of moral integrity. There is not one of us that is without blemish. You, me, the whole room, and anyone watching online, we are all sinners. That, that almost seems like a soft word. Let me, let me put it this way. We've all been evil. We have all been wicked. We have all been treacherous. So here's the situation. Life today holds trouble, and every one of us are evil. This sounds like a terrible situation, except remember the story? Still today, God shows mercy. God showed overwhelming, unexpected, and incredible mercy to Ahaz, who did not deserve it at all. Listen. God shows overwhelming, unexpected, and undeserved mercy to you and I in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our evil. How has God shown us this mercy? Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called God with us. God's delivery mechanism for showing mercy to you and me, it's his son, Jesus who lived a perfect life and then died a sin or a sinner's death. He died your death and my death. He paid the price for all of our sins. 
Listen, all of your sins can be paid for. I know sometimes people sit here in this room and they say, Mike, you don't know how bad my sin is. You don't know how dark my life is. You don't know how much evil I have done in my life. If God was willing to show mercy to Ahaz, God right now in this moment is willing to show his mercy to you. He says, come and trust me. Come and believe in me. Come and trust that my my son Jesus died and rose again. See, still today, not only does God show mercy, but still today, God promises to save. He he can rescue you right now if you're willing to trust in, in Emmanuel, God with us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Which, here's the last piece. Still today, God wants our faith. You know what God wants from you? He wants you to trust him. Listen to these words. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, look to me. Trust me. Believe in me. Have confidence in me. Here's what that looks like. Let me apply this and then I'm going to pray. If you are dealing with real issues, real trouble, real problems in your life, and you are going through all of the rings and all of the hoops that the world has for you to try to fix them, but you're not saying, what would God have me do? If you're not praying and asking God for help, if you're not saying, what is God's wisdom? What what does the scripture say about this? You are doing just what Ahaz has done when he went to an Assyrian king instead of trusting the Savior. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Apply this by saying, what what would God have me do in my trouble? Don't, Don't turn to the world's solutions. Don't do things your way. Choose to trust God and do it his way. But here's the second thing. The second application is, is to repent. Will you just close your eyes for just a moment? And will you examine it? How much of your life in subtle ways is pursuing worldliness? Is pursuing the entertainment of the world? Is pursuing the the pleasure of the world. It's pursuing the credentials of the world and the the pride of the world. It's pursuing, pursuing the positions of the world, the lifestyle of the world. This is a lot of what Ahaz was doing when he takes all the gold from the Lord's temple and he goes and offers it to this foreign king. He says, I want to be like you. I want to follow your ways. And in that moment, what he really should have done is he should have fallen on his face and said, God, I'm sorry. No more worldliness. No more doing it my way. No more lying. No more cheating. No more sexual sin. No more lusting after the things of this world. No more drunkenness. No more idolatry. No more coveting. No more hate, no more jealousy, no more gossip. God, I'm turning away from the ways of this world and I'm turning toward Christ and his mercy. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. God, I come to you asking that you would help us to learn the lesson well of King Ahaz. This king who you offered the world to, And in his foolishness, 
in his desire for things other than you, he, he pursued evil. And God, we admit today that we have a, a world that is full of trouble, that is full of pain. And we confess today that we have hearts that are full of evil and sinfulness. But we know that Jesus, that Jesus offers forgiveness. That he, he offers a new life that he offers a promise even greater than the promise that you gave to Ahaz, that, that you would give him a sign as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. God, you have given us the greatest sign. You have given us your son in his virgin birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. And so today we pray and we repent and we turn away from the world and we put our trust in you. And in doing that, we rejoice knowing that you are God with us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.